Greetings and welcome to episode 36 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today we have a topic that is very near and dear to my heart. That is Taiwan. We're going to start talking about this little island. I don't know if I want to say tiny little island. There's many islands that are much smaller than Taiwan. Uh, it's not bad as far as an island size go, uh, but it's not huge either. Okay, um, Taiwan, this relatively small island off of the southeastern coast of China that remarkably, against all odds, has played this uh, hugely outsized role in East Asian politics, modern Chinese politics specifically, and one might even say global politics for the past, oh, 70 years, definitely, but you could even make an argument that for the past 130 years or so, ever since the 1890s, Taiwan has had a global profile or a regional and then global profile uh, far out of proportion to its actual size. Okay, uh, we often said the, the, these sorts of things. We made these sort of characterizations about nomads on the East Asian mainland as well, despite their numbers. And there we were talking specifically about population numbers. Uh, we would say, despite their numbers, it's amazing how huge of a role that they would play in East Asian continental history. Um, in the case of Taiwan, it's not so much numbers we're talking about because it's going to be fairly densely populated by farmers uh, who are cultivating rice. So we're more talking about just the size of the land, this tiny little. Uh, a, a part of the world that ends up having such a huge influence. Uh, not unknown, obviously England has an enormous influence on the world, and it's a fairly small island. Um, anyway, so let's get started here. We have a lot to talk about. Um, now, of course, this episode comes, I've slated it sort of in the middle of the 20th century, because we're going to pick up with Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists fleeing the mainland in 1949, um, and ending up on Taiwan. They think it's going to be their last stand, and they end up staying there uh, all the way until to today. Um, that's sort of chronologically where we're going to insert ourselves in our modern Chinese history narrative. Uh, but as we talked about last time in our previous episode in which you wanted to talk about Xinjiang, Tibet, Mongolia, all these places, um, <laughs> you can't just jump in in the 20th century. There's a long backstory. There's a lot of historical, cultural, political baggage that we need to be aware of before we can truly make sense of the tensions and conflicts that are going on in the 20th and now 21st century. So let's begin with the pre-modern ethno-political legacy of Taiwan. Okay, Taiwan is, you know, it's one of these places that is a periphery. It's a frontier, but it's a special kind of frontier because it's not seen as a frontier where the overwhelming majority of people are not Han or not Chinese. Eventually, it will be overwhelmingly Han, overwhelmingly Chinese. And yet it still is a place that comes on to the various Chinese dynastic maps very, very late. Okay. In fact, Taiwan was never a part of any Ch mainland East Asian state or even cultural sphere. Okay. Until the late Ming Dynasty, you might even say early Qing Dynasty. All right. Basically, 17th century, the 1600s. Okay, and the reason I say not even a part of the cultural sphere of the Huaxia cultural complex is because we know there's many other places in East Asia uh, that may not be under the control of the East Asian continental heartland state, um, but they will be under its cultural sway. All right, Taiwan is neither. Taiwan is neither until really the 1600s. Okay, and even then it doesn't really get going until the 1800s. All right, very, very late. 
it's going to be politically incorporated later than places like Xinjiang, <laughs> okay, uh, which are definitely not Chinese in a cultural sense. So who lived there? What was the original ethnic and cultural foundation, uh, the landscape of Taiwan? Well, this is going to shock you if you haven't looked into this already. It's Polynesian. Okay, now that's to say that word is sort of anachronistic. I'm taking a modern day term and projecting it backwards. But what I mean by that is that the same people who will end up colonizing those thousands of tiny little uh, uh, flecks of land all throughout the expanses of the Pacific Ocean, the people who will colonize uh, what we now refer to as the Melanesian Islands, the um, uh, Melanesian Micronesian Islands, and then Polynesian Islands. Okay, those people, the, the world's most incredible seafaring people before the Europeans started to go around the world, um, these people actually linguistically, culturally, and very likely genetically can be traced all the way back to the people who were living on Taiwan some five or 6,000 years ago. Now, when you go that far back in time, everything is sort of vague and difficult to pin down, and it's so complex, and there's so many people intermixing with everyone else that it's really hard to say anything definitive. But researchers have been able to determine both genetically and through historical linguist, uh, linguistics that the languages that the Polynesians would later speak throughout the Pacific can actually be traced back to sort of ground zero the aboriginal people who first uh, colonized Taiwan many, many thousands of years ago. Now, where did those people come from? Probably somewhere in southern China. Obviously, it wasn't China that long ago. Uh, but if you're trying to think about genetically or whatnot or biologically, where do these people come from? Probably somewhere in South China, Southeast Asia, a mix of them. They, go, they finally go across the Taiwan Strait. Obviously not called the Taiwan Strait back then. Just a foreboding expanse of water. Um, and they colonized Taiwan, and then from there they moved southward to the Philippines, to Indonesia, um, to the islands uh, Papua New Guinea, off the northern and northeastern coast of Australia, and then they set out from there um, after they've intermixed with a whole bunch of other people and are, you know, culturally uh, not really even... Um, you know, similar to the to their ancestors. That's that's the same for all of us, right? If any one of us were to go back a thousand years and meet people that we're genetically descended from, uh, they would be complete strangers to us. <laughs> okay, there wouldn't be any real substant uh, substantive identification that we could make with them. Same case for this. But for what it's worth, that's the origins. Okay, those are the people who were originally living on Taiwan, and their ancestors are still there. Okay, they're referred to today in Chinese as Yuanzhuming. That just literally means the people who originally resided there. Okay, um, the original inhabitants, sort of like the term Aboriginal in English. Um, and they're mostly confined up to the highest mountain peaks. They used to be all over the island. And then as the lowlands would be cultivated by the migrants coming from the mainland, um, they would gradually be pushed farther and farther out. Um, and they have the exact same problems that Aborigine peoples have suffered throughout the world. Uh, alcoholism, high rates of unemployment, difficult economy, prejudice and discrimination by the mainstream culture down in the lowlands. You know, it's sort of like uh, Native Americans in North America being put in reservations and whatnot. Um, you know, it's getting a little better today with tourist opportunities and whatnot, but it's not a pretty story, obviously, what happens to people when they get pushed out to the margins of society. All right, so that's your first sort of preview here of how this is going to get very complex talking about Taiwan. Um, now, when does it start, when does Taiwan begin to enter the consciousness of political actors on the East Asian mainland? 
All right. Um, well, we can say that during the middle part, the early parts of the Ming Dynasty in the 15th century, um, Taiwan did not probably had next to no uh, mainland agricultural settlers on its island. It was probably almost still entirely those Polynesian Aboriginal uh, ancestors. Okay. When Zheng He, remember Zheng He, the expeditions of Zheng He, if you've been on this podcast long enough, uh, Zheng He undertakes those seven expeditions, Southeast Asia, India, Persian Gulf, and eventually the east coast of Africa uh, to legitimize the Yongle Emperor's uh, illegitimate succession to the throne and killing of his nephew in 1402-ish, you know, whatever, whatever, right around there. And the expeditions are from 1405 to 1433. Uh, well, Zheng He on one of these expeditions obviously is going to be going past Taiwan, all right, that's in his path if you're going to be going down into the South China Sea. It uh, doesn't show a whole lot of interest in it, but in 1430, one of his final expeditions, one of his ships actually has a, uh, is wrecked on Taiwan. And the people on this ship go on board and they report back to Zheng He. There are no Chinese settlements on this island. All we saw were savages. Okay, so in 1430, there's still no mainland settlement on Taiwan. All right, that late. In fact... There's going to be European political influence on Taiwan before there is going to be Chinese political influence. How amazing is this? The Dutch, those enterprising merchants from Northern Europe, the Dutch, will actually, in, as part of their competition with the Spanish and the Portuguese, remember the Spanish are going to take over the Philippines, all right? They're already exploring this part of the world. In 1624, the Dutch will actually set up the, 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 the first outsider military fortifications on Taiwan. And for about 40 years, 38 years to be exact, 38 years from 1624 to 1662, the Dutch, representatives of the Dutch, of the Dutch East Indy Company, trying to find new trade routes and spices and uh, all these sorts of things that the European explorers were doing back then. Uh, they find Taiwan and they say, we don't see any civilized people here either. It's just savages in the mountains. I think we should take over this land. And so they do. And they set up some military structures and settlements, mostly in the southern part of the island. And that's actually a theme that goes on for a while here. Most settlement of Taiwan will take place in the southern parts of the island until... The Japanese in the 20th century reorient much of Taiwan's political and uh, economic uh, uh, demography towards the north. Because today, if you have know anything about Taiwan, you know that Taipei, or Taipei, um, is its most populous city. It's where the capital is. Everything's happening in Taipei. The northern part of the country is more populous, too. And when you want to go on vacation, you go to the south. <laughs> All right, the beaches, the less populated areas and whatnot. Um, and the eastern part, that's where the high mountain uh, 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 peaks are, co uh, coastlines with beautiful views of the water, but not a whole lot of people live there because it constantly, get, constantly gets hit by typhoons and mudslides and all that kind of scary stuff. Okay, um, so we have the Dutch there. All right, um, and you can still today, if you go to if you go to Taiwan, go to some of the southern cities like Tainan. Um, you can go and you can visit some of these things. There's a military uh, structure known as the Hong Maochung, the Red Hair Fortress, <laughs> the Fortress of the Red Hairs. They're referring to the Dutch, okay, uh, with red hair, um, and that is still a tourist site that you can go visit today. When I was uh, in Taiwan, uh, well, I've been to Taiwan many, many times, as you know, it's near and dear to my heart. My my spouse is from Taiwan. My kids are half Taiwanese. I go back there all the time. Okay, and one of these times I went down there, and uh, it's actually a pretty cool tourist site. It's over 400 years old. 
Okay, so how do the Dutch get kicked out? Well, this is also going to get complicated here. All right, tune your ears and prick your ears up because here we go. Okay, so the Dutch are there in the middle of 17th century. If you know anything about the middle of 17th century in East Asia, this is the Ming-Qing transition. This is when the Manchus, allied with Eastern Mongols and Northern Han, uh, uh, initiate their final conquest of the Chinese heartland. Okay, and when they initiate their final conquest of the Chinese heartland, they send the, em the, the last Ming emperor packing. Well, the last Ming emperor, legitimate emperor in Beijing, commits suicide, but his, his sons and various other pretenders will continue to try to revive the Ming cause, and they'll have their own followers, and they keep going further and further south. All right, and as they're retreating further and further south, the Manchu conquest of all of southern China takes an excruciatingly long period of time. Much of the 17th century, they're still fighting various people in the southern parts of China. Okay, during... All this fighting. While you still have large contingents of Ming Dynasty loyalists in the south, in the areas that are across the Taiwan Strait from Taiwan, Fujian province is the province right across from Taiwan, in these areas, uh, while the Dutch are there, you will find a, well, how, how, how are we going to describe them? Sort of a maritime empire from, uh, run by uh, people known as the Zheng family. And the most famous person in the Zheng family will be Zheng Changgong. All right, in Zheng Changgong, uh, there is a university in Tainan, the city of Tainan on Taiwan today, called the Zheng Changgong University, Zheng, uh, Zheng Changgong Dashui. All right, uh, that's a nice university as well, by the way. Uh, Zheng Changgong is originally a politically unaffiliated, all right, not interested in politics, just interested in doing his own sort of half pirate, half merchant business all throughout the waters. All right, of southeastern China, working with Japanese merchants, fighting Japanese pirates, you know, staking out his claim to a maritime emperor, maritime empire. <laughs> All right. And what he decides to do is he decides to get involved in the civil war going on on the East Asian mainland. He says, I'm going to support the Ming emperors. Okay, remember, if you're a southerner, usually you support those more Chinese, those more Han-centered dynasties. And you are more inclined to see those northern nomads as barbarians. If you already live in the north, you're already acclimated to them and reconciled to them, and you usually don't see them so much as barbarians in that sense. You often work together with them. But in the south, Zheng Chenggong, this guy who's usually in a boat on the water, says, you know, I'm going to support the Ming Dynasty. And he decides to seize Taiwan from the Dutch. So the Dutch are kicked out by who is someone who was originally a politically unaffiliated, only interested in maritime profit pirate, so to speak, Zheng Chenggong. All right. And then from Taiwan, he says, I'm going to resist the Qing dynasty. Well, this is kind of sort of like we talked about with the loss of Mongolia, right? Uh, how did the, 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 the 20th century Chinese state lose outer Mongolia? Because the uh, uh, Chinese warlords who were supposed to be controlling it were not able to kick out the white uh, loyalist of the old czarist forces. And the Reds, the Bolsheviks, said, fine, we're going to go in and do it ourselves. It's kind of similar to what we're going to see here in Taiwan. Zheng Chenggong establishes Taiwan as a base from which to resist the Manchu conquest of the Ming dynasty and says, I'm a Ming loyalist. Well, when you do that, then the Qing are going to see you as their mortal enemy. And they're going to go in and they do exactly what they do. They defeat Zheng Chenggong in battle. I think that maybe he dies at some point and they have to defeat his son or his son surrenders, something like that. These details I always kind of forget. You can look them up. I want to give you the big themes. All right. And they defeat him in military conflict. 
and incorporate Taiwan, but they don't incorporate Taiwan as a province. They're kind of reluctant. They don't really want Taiwan. It's like Xinjiang. We didn't really want Xinjiang. That's a huge hassle. It's a drain on our resources. Why do we have to rule this area? Well, if we don't, then it's going to be a political vacuum, and someone's going to come in and use it as a base to attack us, just like we saw in the case of Taiwan. So you got to kind of administer it. So they take it, and they decide, okay, Taiwan's going to be a county of Fujian province across the Taiwan Strait. So for a long time, Taiwan is just a county, all right? It's not even its own province because they didn't want to turn it into a regular province. They didn't want to give it that level of stature and attention. And they weren't all that thrilled about Han migrants from Fujian province crossing over on their own initiative to settle Taiwan. But that is exactly what happened, all right? So most of the people, most of the Han who will settle the lowlands and plant rice paddies in Taiwan all the way up until 1949, when you get the contingent of mainlanders fleeing the communist uh, 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 victory on the mainland, all right, from about the 1700s to 1949, anyone who considered themselves Han, who considered themselves Chinese on Taiwan, uh, would have been descended from these migrants from Fujian province, okay? Um, and a lot of them came illegally. A lot of them came on their own initiative. The state didn't really want them there because once they're there, you need to start getting involved with the, with the inevitable disputes they're going to have with the native inhabitants, those, those, those aborigines uh, who occupied the whole island and aren't too pleased at having their lands turned into farmland. And there would be disputes that arose all the time. The Qing court would debate the merits and demerits of having Taiwan, and there were some advisors who and there were some advisors who derided Taiwan as a worthless ball of mud. We don't want it. How are we going to wash our hands of this thing? Um, but they couldn't. They couldn't. They had all of these Han migrants from Fujian in the 18th and 19th century who kind of forced the Qing state to intervene and mitigate the conflict. All right. How, what, what is sort of the ethnic geography of that conflict? Well, this is, this is complicated again. All right. Taiwan, you should sort of think of it, despite it being so small, there are three distinct areas of the island that were settled by different types of people. Fujianese, migrants from Fujianese, who at the time wouldn't identify as Fujianese or even Han. They would have identified from the city in Fujian that they came from. They would have said, I'm from Quanzhou or I'm from Fuzhou. And that was their identity, their city. Remember, this is pre-nationalism, all right? They're not identifying in terms of ethnicity or even the province they come from, all right? So migrants speaking a southern Fujianese dialect, totally unintelligible to Mandarin Chinese in the north, all right? They are going across and they are settling the lowlands chiefly on the western coast, all right? The western coast closest to the water from whence you came. And they're planting, and they're planting rice, all right. This would have been the ancestors of almost all of my in-laws, if you've been on this podcast for a while. You know, I used to talk about my in-laws much more. I haven't really had an occasion to talk about them recently, but now that we're on Taiwan, absolutely I will be. All right. Most of my in-laws, interestingly enough, uh, my wife's family and their ancestors did not go to come, come to Taiwan after 1949. Okay. And that's a major distinction today. When did you come to Taiwan? Is it after 49 or, or, or pre-49? And my wife's family, uh, uh, most of the people who came after 49 live in Taipei originally. That's where the nationalists fled to. Um, and they live in Taichung, all right? One of the cities a little bit uh, further south, although not that far south as far as the whole island is concerned. Um, and they settled in the lowlands on the western uh, uh, coast and they planted rice, all right? And they were peasants, okay? And they speak Taiwanese. 
That's the evolution of the Fujianese dialect that would have come into Taiwan with all of those migrants in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century. Okay, totally unintelligible language, form of speech, <laughs> okay, from all the other dialects in China. Now, a little higher up in the middle of the low mountains, you have what are known as the Hakka people, Kejia in Mandarin. Okay, and they come from distinct communities in southern China as well, speaking their own distinct language, and they have a very distinct identity. All right, and they consider themselves to be different than the Fujinis uh, who live in the, in, in the lowlands and plant rice. They have a lot of similarities to an outsider, but with, you know, among Taiwanese themselves, many Kujia people, many Hakka people will identify differently, and they'll say, no, 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 I am of a different group. Okay, interestingly enough, I actually, amazingly enough, I actually have a connection with this as well. Um, I think I've mentioned before how my wife's, my, my father-in-law uh, divorced and got remarried. And when he got remarried, he actually married a, 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 a Kujaren, uh, someone who is Hakka. Um, now, she just doesn't really, she speaks Mandarin Chinese. Uh, she learned Taiwanese. Uh, but whenever we visit her family, her mother, who is still alive, uh, we go up into the mountains. We don't go to the highest peaks of the mountains, but we actually have to drive an hour or two straight up into the mountains because that's where most of the Hakka lived. And she has her own little farm on the slopes of a mountain. Okay, the, this Hakka family did not grow up in the rice-growing lowlands. And then finally, now in the high mountain regions, because they got pushed there, are the Aborigines. Okay, and the Aborigines, as the, the migrants from Fujian enter Taiwan... And the Qing Dynasty reluctantly decides, all right, we have to have a provincial administration. We need to send magistrates out there. We have to have a small military presence because they're getting into conflicts all the time with the mountain savages, as they would have referred to them. Okay, and from the perspective of the Qing state at the time, they regarded these savages in uh, two different terms. The ones who were willing to adopt some semblance of Chinese culture, they referred to them as cooked savages. And those who were not, they referred to as raw savages. That's just their way of saying, pretty, uh, that, that, that's just the Qing Dynasty's way of slapping a label on who's going to be more friendly to us or less friendly to us. If they fight us, they're a raw savage. Um, if they trade with us and they don't fight with us, then they're a cooked savage. And these people, from the perspective of the Qing, were totally okay to assimilate because they didn't have a, a written uh, language. They didn't have texts. All right. They didn't have, uh, you know, large, imposing, permanent architecture and urban cities and whatnot. They were regarded as uncivilized. And if you're not civilized, you are uh, 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 targets for assimilation. There's no compunction about civilizing you because it's seen to be in your best interest. This is very different from, let's say, the Tibetans or the Mongols or the Muslims. Okay. All of whom were regarded as distinct peoples with their own civilization. You don't assimilate them. You let them stay their own ways, and you just try to get political loyalty and economic integration. Uh, but you do not assimilate people who are already civilized. Okay, that's the general way of thinking about this. All right, now, things change again, and we've already talked about this in the previous episode on Japan versus China. Things change again in the late 19th century. All right, in the late 19th century, remember we mentioned Taiwan before, because Taiwan, just like every periphery, uh, attracts the covetous attention of newly emergent empires who are competing with the Qing dynasty in East Asia. This includes Russia in the north and Central Asia, the British coming up from India, the French in Indochina. 
All right. Um, and the Japanese coming from the Northeast. And remember we talked about before, there was this incident in 1871 in which there is a shipwreck from the Ryukyu Islands. That's the present day sort of Okinawa archipelago, right? To the south of, of the, the four main Japanese islands. Um, and the Ryukyus were people who sent tribute to the shogun in Edo, right? They were sort of loosely within the Japanese political orbit. They also sometimes sent uh, tribute to the Qing emperor. They're sort of playing both sides, hedging their bets, okay? Loosely incorporated into both empires. In 1871, a Ryukyu ship wrecks on the southeastern coast of Taiwan. And the Botan Aborigines, the Botan tribe, attacks them and kills many of them. And tales of headhunters come back because many of the Aborigine tribes were also had the practice of cutting off heads and using them as trophies. And Japan learns that the Ryukyu ship has been attacked and, 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 and its sailors killed and their heads cut off by these savages in Taiwan, and it demands compensation from the Qing. And the Qing disavows the whole thing and says, no, 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 we only claim the part of Taiwan where we have rice-growing settlers in the western lowlands. Remember, they're not thinking about in 20th century conceptions in which you look on a map and you think everything within these borders is ours, all the space. They're thinking in terms of tax-paying subjects. Remember, individual loyalty in the form of taxes. This is who we care about, and the rest of the land doesn't concern us. Well, that's going to come back to bite them, because then Japan says, fine, you don't want to pay us anything for the Ryukyun sailors who we claim as our own. That's sort of a dubious claim, too, but they're being opportunistic and trying to claim them as their own. Say, fine, we'll go into Taiwan ourselves, and we'll, and we'll retaliate. And in 1874, Japan does. They land a ship on the southeastern coast of Japan and chase the Aborigines around the jungles for a few days and kill a few of them. And then the Qing Dynasty realizes, uh-oh, this isn't a good move. Now we've given Japan a pretext to claim part of this island. It's only a short step now before they find a pretext to claim the entire island. And so they go back on their original promise, say, fine, 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 fine. We, we will pay an indemnity. Uh, don't run around this island anymore. We will pay an indemnity to you. And then they decide to turn Taiwan into a province so that they can, so they can claim the whole thing. All right, and in 1885, Taiwan becomes a Qing Dynasty province, and as you already know, it only lasts for 10 years as a province in its own right as a part of the Qing Empire, because the Japanese decide that's what we're going to take in 1895 when they defeat the Qing Dynasty in the Sino-Japanese War of 1894 to 1895. The Treaty of Shimonoseki, remember Japan originally, Taiwan was low on their list of what they wanted. They wanted monetary reparations, they wanted influence in Korea, and all of these things were uh, pushed back upon by uh, the Western powers, chiefly the Russians, who said, no, 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 you're not getting into Korea. All right, the Qing Dynasty didn't really want to pay more money, uh, so the compromise all around was fine, fine, fine. You, 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 you can have Taiwan. Um, and the Japanese were, yeah, okay, Taiwan it was top of our list before, but that's actually pretty strategically useful. It's on the, the main sh sailing routes uh, to get to Southeast Asia. Everyone has to go back by Taiwan. It can be a foothold to get onto the Chinese mainland. Um, and so they take it. All right. Now, for the next 50 years, a nice even round number. You don't get that too often. Exactly 50 years, 1895 to 1945. Um, Taiwan will be a part of the Japanese Empire. This is really interesting. Okay, it's going to be a part of the Japanese Empire for a fairly long period of time, 50 years, and then spit back at the Chinese, and they're going to have to deal with the legacy of the Japanese Empire. Well, what is that legacy? Very interesting. Unlike the mainland, 
Japan had resources to develop the industrial infrastructure of Taiwan. And they do. They undertake the construction of railways, roads, hospitals, harbors, irrigation, sewage, electrical power grids, all the things that we think about when we think about modernization. All right, now China's trying to do this too, but they have a lot more problems. They have a lot more unequal treaties, indemnities they have to pay, and it's a much bigger land with a lot more complications. And they can't devote all this attention uniformly across their country. So some places in China, mainly these eastern coasts, you know, big cities where you have lots of foreigners, they'll get power grids. They'll get newly paved asphalt ro- uh, roads and some railro- railways and whatnot. Uh, but it's hit or miss. And it's very, it's very localized. Uh, Taiwan is going to be relatively prosperous for the 50 years under the Japanese Empire. By 1904, it's making a pretty handsome profit for Japan. Taiwan is going to export, I think, half of its rice yield every single year and still have enough rice to feed its own pop, uh, its own population. Okay? That's how successful the agricultural reforms will be. All right? For the next 50 years, Taiwan will end up being totally insulated from all the chaos and warfare that goes on on the mainland. Think about that for a second. That's a very important legacy. Because they're not going to be ravaged by warlords. They're not going to be ravaged by a Japanese invasion. Remember, the Japanese got Taiwan as a result of war, but they didn't actually go to, go to war in Taiwan. It was just given to them in whole, intact, without having to actually like fight on Taiwan soil. No battle is going to take place on Taiwan soil at all. Think of that. No soldiers romping across the land. There will be Japanese soldiers deployed in Taiwan, and they'll put down some insurrection sometimes, but that's not the same thing as fighting a major international war um, on that island. Okay, So Taiwan is going to, generally speaking, and of course if you get down to the details, it'll be a little more you know, complex, and you can't make broad sweeping statements and whatnot, but you can say, generally speaking, Taiwan is going to be seen as one of the more successful Japanese colonies. No starvation, no droughts, no famines. Mass-scale famines are still a thing that happens on China into the 1950s. People still die because they don't get enough food to eat. Throughout the entire Republican era, 1912 to 1949, and even the first uh, 13 years of the Communist era. Think about that. As late as the early 1960s, people are starving to death. What a horrible way to die. No one starves to death on Taiwan while they're a part of the Japanese Empire. Okay? uh, Taiwan was generally treated um, better and more leniently than Korea. Once the Japanese get a hold of Korea, as we talked about before, they'll be much more punitive. All right? Uh, Much more uh, assimilationist in sort of a violent, coercive way. Much less tolerance for rebellion. Um, But not in Taiwan. In Taiwan, it'll be more by the carrot, not by the stick. It'll be incentives to adopt uh, to, to adopt a Japanese name, all right? There'll be incentives to learn Japanese in school, all right? Whereas in Korea, it'll be more imposed, and you better do this or else. In Taiwan, it's more like, uh, wouldn't it be great if you learn Japanese? Here are the opportunities that you'll get if you do so. But you don't have to if you don't want to, okay? So here's the legacy that's going to be left to the nationalists when they come to Taiwan Well, first, when they take Taiwan from the Japanese in 1945, and then when they flee to Taiwan in 1949, 
is that Japan had been seen as the mortal enemy of most Chinese on the mainland for about 50 years. But they were not seen as a mortal enemy to most people on Taiwan. All right. There were some people who didn't like the fact that Japan was taking over Taiwan, and Japan acknowledged that and gave a grace period of a couple years when they first got the island, saying anyone who wants to leave Taiwan can leave. Get out of here in the next couple of years if you can't reconcile yourself to Japanese rule. And so many of the diehard sort of Confucian nationalists did. They left and took their wealth with them. All right, that's actually a very smart strategy, by the way. <laughs> Get rid of the most diehard opposition by saying go um, if you don't want to stay with us. All right, we'll, 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 we'll let you leave peacefully. Okay, so what happens is that Japan, to this day, if you travel throughout Asia, pretty much every Asian country that you travel to, and you start talking about Japan, you're going to get a pretty negative impression. There'll be admiration for Japan's modernization, how wealthy it is, what they've been able to do, admiration for the fact that they were the only you know, non-Western power to successfully stand up to Western powers and kick their asses in war and whatnot. There's admiration for that and respect for what they've done. But there's usually a pretty visceral loathing for Japan's political and military intervention in their countries during the first half of the 20th century, even if Japan contributed to the modernization and industrial infrastructure of their, of their country. Okay? Um, and that's the case in many countries, definitely in Korea and, and in mainland China. All right? Japan is still this sort of buzzword that politicians invoke whenever they need a, you know, an outside enemy to invoke and direct the rage of all of their citizens. You just talk about comfort women, Nanjing massacre, military, you know, uh, biological warfare, all these things, how they didn't have to apologize after World War II and everything and got off scot-free, all right? Um, you know, there, there is a very visceral loathing in most Asian countries for Japan. Not so in Taiwan. <laughs> I was surprised myself when I went to Taiwan. I was thinking, Japan seems to have a pretty good image here. There's a lot of Japanese companies. People talk well about Japan, Japanese products, Japanese people. There's a lot of people traveling to Japan for tourist purposes and whatnot. And generally speaking, I, when I, my first time I was ever in Taiwan, I was thinking, wow, I'm surprised how, how, how welcoming everyone here seems to be of Japan. I was like, weren't you guys a Japanese colony for 50 years? And the general historical consciousness about that was not a negative one. It was not a negative one. All right, there was one time I was talking to a, a Taiwanese diplomat from the current uh, Taiwanese embassy known as the uh, Tekro office, Taiwanese Economic and Cultural Representative Office. They can't be called an ambassador anymore, obviously. Um, and he was saying, you know, uh, Jap uh, Taiwan, the Japanese uh, love Taiwan as well because Taiwan is the only Asian country that doesn't hate them. <laughs> he was saying this. He was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Taiwan is the only Asian country that doesn't have this visceral loathing for Japan. And when Japanese are tourists to Taiwan, um, you know, they always feel like, wow, Taiwan is a place that really likes us and appreciates the historical legacy that we left behind and doesn't have this sort of hatred for us or a legacy of horrible things that we've done to them in the distant past. All right. Um, and oftentimes the Japanese will be explicitly contrasted with mainland China and saying, you know, if mainland China gets a hold of us, you know, this is what they're going to do. But look what Japan did when they were here. We were a relatively prosperous place. Wouldn't it have been nice to be integrated into Japan? 
and they almost were actually <laughs> a little more on that in a minute. Um, and this and this diplomat was also saying things like, um, you know, Japan they can't officially acknowledge that Taiwan loves us because officially we don't exist. They have to acknowledge mainland China, but they try to show their their love for us in other ways. You know, the wife of the prime minister will visit Taiwan. The prime minister himself can't visit, but his wife will will, will visit. And they and, and and they try to acknowledge that we love each other. Um, you know, sort of um, under the radar, under the official radar. I remember that was a pretty funny conversation uh, that I had, but is rooted in a kernel of truth. It's rooted in a kernel of truth that the legacy of the Japanese empire is relatively um, uh, benevolent, seen as benevolent among people in Taiwan. Okay. Um, now, the other part of, the, of, of this legacy, which is going to be very problematic after 1945, after Japan leaves, and then is still kind of an issue today, uh, complicates identity politics in Taiwan today, is that the ideology and the linguistic infrastructure would be oriented towards Japan, not China. All right. You go to school, you go to a good school, not some local school funded by your village. You go to any decent, halfway decent school in Taiwan for 50 years of the Japanese empire, you are learning Japanese. You are not learning Mandarin Chinese. There's almost no formal Mandarin language, uh, uh, Mandarin Chinese language instruction in Taiwan for 50 years, unless you're uh, the son of a wealthy landowner and he, ha and he hires a private t uh, tutor to teach you. Okay, you go to a good school, it's, you're going to be learning Japanese, you're going to be learning about Japanese history, the Japanese emperor, okay, um, and you're going to start to see yourself as Taiwanese, not I came from Chenzhou in Fujian a long time ago, all right, not Han, the Japanese are, 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 are cultivating you to think of yourself as Taiwanese, a coherent people, the Taiwanese people. And for the first time, this modern identity of being Taiwanese, not some parochial identity, not Chenjonese, Fujonese, Fujinese. We're Taiwanese. And we're Taiwanese who are oriented towards Japan, both politically and linguistically. I've probably told you at some point in this podcast before, my wife's grandmother, still alive, God bless her, she's like 94 years old. All right, she would have been born in the 1920s, raised in the 1930s and 1940s. Um, she learned Japanese in her youth. I think what well, my wife's grandfather did as well. And when I met them, and I remember, oh, great, I'm going to be able to talk to my wife's grandmother, learn a, bit, a little bit, bit about history. I couldn't talk to her at all because she spoke two languages. I spoke two languages. She spoke two languages, and neither one of them had any overlap whatsoever. I spoke Mandarin Chinese and English, <laughs> right? She spoke Japanese and Taiwanese. She never learned Mandarin Chinese. Now, over the decades, as I've come to know her, she's actually picked up a little more Mandarin because Mandarin, you know, uh, is essential for many things. But you can survive quite well in Taiwan for a long time knowing nothing but Taiwanese. Obviously, her Japanese had regressed over all these years, uh, but she still knew some of it. Um, now, the last political legacy of Taiwan, all right, is that uh, Taiwanese men served in the Japanese army. 80,000 Taiwanese served as soldiers and, and sailors and fought for the Japanese military throughout Asia, okay? Uh, Taiwan, uh, along with Korea, was elevated above, was, was one of the first colonies to be elevated to a, 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 an administrative status that was more than just a colony, all right? It was elevated to a prefecture of Japan, and as a result, it got eight seats in the Japanese parliament, voting representation in Japanese politics, Okay, it was on track along with Korea to be fully integrated 
with the Japanese core inner state. A lot of people forget this. Taiwan was that far along to being integrated into the Japanese state. You know, that'll be our fifth island, the four main islands, then the small, these little tiny uh, uh, islands in the Ryukyus, and then Taiwan. That'll be the fifth main island of Japan. So a legacy of all this in 1945, when Japan suddenly is kicked out, very suddenly, is that people in Taiwan now have a thirst for political autonomy and representation because the Japanese were starting to give it to them. And Taiwan had never been a part of the Republic of China. When Taiwan left the mainland, the Manchu Qing Empire was in power. They never saw the Republic of China. They were never a part of it. I often point out the irony. Think about this. Throughout the 20th century, throughout the last 125 years, imagine this, throughout the last 125 years, Taiwan has been ruled by a government that was based on the East Asian mainland for four years. That's it. Four years. 1945 to 1949. And those years were so chaotic and hectic, it hardly can be called government. All right, that's an astonishing thing to think about. Okay, this is not going to be an easy place to bring back into the Chinese fold if it was ever really in the Chinese fold. Okay, now let's get to the really contentious stuff and pick up our chronology back where we left it off in previous episodes. The end of World War II. Okay, now the nationalists in 1945 don't know that they're going to need to retreat to Taiwan one day. Okay, they approach Taiwan. They approach Taiwan as a place that they can exploit for the struggle on the mainland. All right, they look back and they see, whoa, look at this strong Taiwanese identity that has political aspirations that the Japanese cultivated. We need to turn the clock back on all of that. We need to turn the clock back on the Japanese linguistic instruction. This is not cool. Our subjects are speaking Japanese. And they need to learn Mandarin Chinese. Not only that, there was a widespread uh, 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 impression that the people on Taiwan were ungrateful. Look at you guys living peacefully and developing with these traitors, China's mortal enemy. You've been helping them out, giving them resources, serving in their goddamn military. You fought us, for God's sake, and 80,000 soldiers fought for Japan against us. You betrayed us. You guys need to pay for the past 50 years. You know all the shit we've been through on the mainland since you guys left in 1895? All the wars, the warlords, the invasion of Japan, the famines, the droughts, my God. And now you're going to help the motherland. Finally, at last. That was the attitude of the nationalists when they got Taiwan back. Not really got it back, they never had it. When they got Taiwan in 1945. And so the economic resources, all that industrial buildup that Japan had initiated on Taiwan is immediately diverted to the mainland for use in the civil war against the communists. Entire factories and plants are dismantled and sent to the mainland. Wires, pipes, metal roofs are sold in Shanghai for scrap. Taiwanese property is seized. Anyone who has money in Taiwan, all you had to do is say the owner was a collaborator with the Japanese and you can seize their property. Japanese is now useless. And so we need to, you know, people, we're, we're, we're only going to promote people who know, who, who know Mandarin Chinese. Well, no one on Taiwan knows Mandarin Chinese, so we're going to bring our, in our own guys from the mainland to take over all the political roles. Oh, and those political ambitions that Japan was starting to cultivate in you? Forget about it. Okay? Uh, you're not going to have any sort of political representation. You're not going to be voting or anything like that. There's an authoritarian state 
yes, we're promising democracy one day, but we're not there yet because we're in a state of war. So you're not getting any of that democracy just yet. Agricultural productivity plummets after 1949. It goes back to 1910 levels. Talk about going back in time. No fertilizer is provided. Irrigation systems are not maintained. All of this in just two years, less than two years, creates such extraordinary discontent among the Japanese that you get the infamous R.R. Ba incident in 1947. R.R. Ba, 228, the February 28th, 1947 incident, in which people who are protesting state violence and the government commercial monopolies and the general corruption and oppression that this punitive nationalist control in Taiwan represents, they rise up and they take over many of the major cities, demonstrating in the streets. So what do you think Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists are going to do? Well, of course, they're going to do what any dictator does. They're going to wash the streets in blood and crack down and suppress them. And they do. And they utterly crush Taiwanese resistance to the, re to the imposition of nationalist mainland rule. And in 1947, two years before they retreat in the Civil War, they still don't know they're going to have to retreat to Taiwan, they institute martial law. And Taiwan will be under martial law for the next 38 years. Count them, 38 years. That takes you to 1985, okay? Uh, my father-in-law and mother-in-law pretty much grew up entire lives until they were well into their 30s with their own families. They grew up their entire lives under martial law, which was, institu which, which was uh, instituted before they were even born. 1947, Okay. Um, this is not an auspicious beginning, right? Because now the nationalists are going to find that we need to retreat to Taiwan as they lose the civil war. It's the, you know, it's the most logical place to retreat to. It's still part of East Asia. It's still part of China. Uh, but you got this, the, the, uh, the protection of the Taiwan Strait now, which will give you a little bit of time and make it harder. It's much harder to invade an island than it is to invade a contiguous land province. So nationalists retreat to Taiwan in 1948. They begin to halt the transport of rice and resources from Taiwan to the mainland. Remember, they were exploiting everything on Taiwan and sending it to the mainland. Now they realize, oh shit, we actually need to go back to Taiwan, stop transporting this, and leave it in Taiwan because we need to use it there. Anything sent to the mainland will now fall into the hands of the communists. And in 1949, the nationalists and anyone who is just, you know, can't reconcile themselves to the idea of living under the communists, uh, retreat to Taiwan. In all, some 1.5 to 2 million mainlanders will relocate to Taiwan. They become one-fifth of the population. This is a major demographic and cultural shift. First, you had a traumatic political transition. Okay, Now you're having a traumatic demographic and cultural shift. Because most of the people who are fleeing are speakers of Mandarin Chinese or various other dialects on the mainland that are mutually unintelligible with Taiwanese. Okay, um, and most of them are loyal nationalist uh, officers, officials, soldiers. Six hundred thousand soldiers alone will retreat to Taiwan, and these people, all right, the mainlanders. That's a big distinction today. The mainlanders versus people who are from this region already, meaning they their ancestors migrated during the the uh, Qing Dynasty. They will dominate the government, the military, and the economy of Taiwan. And they will also focus their domination in the north. Now, I forgot to mention, uh, the Japanese were the first to do that. The Japanese set up their colonial capital in Taipei, all right, the, today's biggest city. Um, and the nationalists will simply build on the Japanese model 
and continue to use Taipei as the political, economic, cultural center of their new base. They don't really call it a new country because they still insist this is China, which technically on paper it is. Okay. Now, the first task of Chiang Kai-shek when he goes back to Taiwan is the survival of the Nationalist Party. He's beset on all sides. Okay. Uh, first, he doesn't like the idea of the Taiwanese independence movement or the Taiwanese identity. It's a threat to the Chinese identity. And, he said, and so he initiates another crackdown just two years after the 1947 bloodbath. And 10,000 Taiwanese are arrested as an intimidation tactics. Chiang doesn't trust his own nationalist generals as well. Remember that rot that took hold of the Nationalist Party during World War II and all the concessions and compromises that Chiang Kai-shek had to make, the loss of morale? He doesn't trust his generals either, the same generals who uh, didn't fight when he ordered them to fight against the communists and pursued their own agendas. Chiang even says, quote, one million of our troops surrendered without firing a single shot. He wants to reform the Nationalist Party entirely. And he does. In Taiwan, he can do that. Taiwan's going to be small enough. For he ends up undertaking a purge of his own internal ranks, something that Mao Zedong had been able to do during the rectification campaign in Yan'an from 1942 to 1944. Okay. Um, now, he also has to worry about the communists and the Americans, because the Americans said, to hell with you, Chiang Kai-shek. They weren't interested in supporting him. As Chiang Kai-shek flees to Taiwan, everyone in the world is expecting that it's only a matter of time before the communists regroup, they, 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 they amass a huge number of forces in Fujian, and then they invade Taiwan, and Chiang Kai-shek is going to have to seek exile in some other state. Okay? No one expected what was eventually going to happen. The U.S. said repeatedly and publicly, we will not save Chiang Kai-shek. We're sick and tired of him. We don't trust him anymore. Uh, he can't save the Nationalist Party, and they began to look for other people within the Nationalist Party who they thought maybe we can support them to uh, undertake a coup against Chiang Kai-shek. Right? That was actually happening, and Chiang Kai-shek was aware of that and afraid of that. All right? He sees threats on all sides. So, what are you going to do? All right, the mainland, the PRC, the newly established People's Republic of China, the Communist Forces, they are preparing to attack. October 1949, they begin to attack with the offshore island of Jinmen. And that's repulsed by the nationalists. And they realize, okay, the nationalists are going to defend Taiwan to the death. They're not going to retreat without firing a shot like they did in much of southern China. They are actually going to fight for Taiwan. This will be a real battle like the Civil War was not really a real battle. Many of those battles were not really even fought. A few token shots and whatnot, and then the nationalist generals and warlords retreated. Okay, so they say, okay, we got to prepare for this properly. And the communists prepare for a spring 1950 attack. Lin Biao and the PLA is preparing 800,000 men. And as they're preparing for this spring 1950 attack, a conversation ensues among Stalin, Kim Il-sung in Korea, in North Korea, and, they're at, and Mao Zedong. And they're starting to talk about who do we attack first? All these partitions that occurred in the end of World War II. North Korea, South Korea, mainland China, Taiwan, and then eventually, you know, northern Vietnam, southern Vietnam. We need to resolve all these situations, either in favor of communism or capitalism. And so they have a conversation. Should the North Koreans be allowed to attack South Korea first, or should the Chinese be able to attack Taiwan first? 
Kim Il-sung in North Korea says, ask for permission. I think I should go into South Korea first. That's the bigger danger. Everyone knows that Taiwan can't resist the mainland. Okay? It's just a matter of time. And they'll get it. But North Korea, South Korea, that's much more precarious. It's the, the, the fate is unknown. We can't give them time to regroup. And we can't give the Americans a lot of time to support the South Koreans. And Stalin says, okay. And Mao Zedong agrees. Mao actually says, all right, all right, we're not quite ready anyways. The logic sounds good. And he thinks that a North Korean victory in South Korea will utterly demoralize Chiang Kai-shek further. He's convinced the North Koreans will win. He doesn't think the Americans will come to the aid of, of, of South Korea. And he says, once Chiang Kai-shek sees the South Koreans lose, he's going to know that there's no hope for him. Okay. Uh, Chiang vows to fight to the death. And he eschews, he, he rejects all offers of comfortable exile. Okay. This is the situation on June 25th, 1950, which changes everything. The outbreak of the Korean War. Two days after North Korea, after Kim Il-sung invades South Korea, June 27th, the United States does what neither Mao Zedong or Chiang Kai-shek thought they were going to do, because the president kept on saying, we're not going to save Chiang Kai-shek. <laughs> Two days later, President Truman sends in the U.S. 7th Fleet to the Taiwan Strait and says, in the face of this aggression, we cannot allow the communist world to take over any more territory. We need to ensure Taiwan's separation from the mainland, just like they're going to try to ensure South Korea's separation from North Korea. On every score, it's going to be a zero-sum game. If we let the communists take it, it's a defeat for capitalism and the free world. And so there needs to be a, a, a non-communist China, a non-communist Korea, a non-communist Vietnam. And to capitulate in any one of those is to have a domino effect that will take down all of the others. The U.S. ideal is that we're going to be able to create and perpetuate this two Chinas. Okay? Um, or just the Republic of China with no communist China. And we're going to support, in the new United Nations, we're going to support having uh, Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist government in power. They don't like Chiang Kai-shek. They don't want to work with him. And they're still looking at the possibility of overthrowing him in a coup. So even though the U.S. will become a very strong ally of uh, Chiang Kai-shek and his nationalist party uh, over the next 50 years and all the way down to the present day, okay, it was a very volatile relationship behind the scenes. Because neither one really trusted the intention of the other. Okay? So as you probably know, for the next 20-odd years, Taiwan, well, specifically the Republic of China, as represented by Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist government from its province of Taiwan, will occupy the United Nations seat on China. Okay? It'll occupy the United Nations seat on China. It's remarkable, this tiny little island will get enough political support, spearheaded by the United States, of course, uh, to maintain its existence in the face of mainland China, which is so overwhelmingly bigger, you know, wealthier, uh, more military, uh, by every single factor. If the United States withdrew its support uh, at any time, Taiwan would be gone the very next day. But with the United States there, the mainland government will not test that. Now, what we need to talk about here is how... The stalemate that occurs actually ends up being in the interests of both Chiang Kai-shek and Mao Zedong. Okay? Let's talk about the one China policy. Both Chiang Kai-shek and Mao Zedong are Chinese nationalists. They believe in one China. 
and they see China as having been beset by imperialist threats for, the, for their entire lifetime. And their biggest goal in life is to make sure that China is not uh, 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 taken apart into separate individual nations. No more Outer Mongolia. No more next Outer Mongolia. No more Waimung Jirsu, the next Outer Mongolia. All right? And what Mao actually ends up realizing is that Chiang Kai-shek is committed to the One China policy. He also believes in the exact same thing. Their only point of dispute is the ideological disposition of the specific government that is in charge of China. But Chiang Kai-shek, when he suppresses Taiwanese identity, Taiwanese politicians, the Taiwanese independence movement, this pleases Mao Zedong and the communist leaders on the mainland. They say, wait a second, we have our differences, but we agree on this. We also both agree. We both agree that Xinjiang is a part of China. Tibet is a part of China. That's a considerable overlap of your geopolitical interests, even if your ideological interests are opposed. And so Mao actually says, you know what? We don't really need to invade Taiwan so long as Chiang Kai-shek and his Nationalist Party is in power, because the Nationalist Party is always looking back to the mainland. They always see Taiwan as temporary, and they want to link themselves to the mainland. And, they're all, and they insist on calling Taiwan the Republic of China. We'd like to add a people to the front of Republic of China, People's Republic of China, but nonetheless, it's still China, not Republic of Taiwan. If the U.S. had its way, it might be a Republic of Taiwan or Republic of Southeastern China. And that would be a disaster. Let me give you a wonderful example, my favorite example of this one China policy of Chiang Kai-shek's and Mao Zedong's in practice. All right. Now, because they hate each other and they fight each other, uh, they constantly are shelling themselves with artillery across the Taiwan Strait. It goes both ways. The islands of Fujian and then Fujian to the offshore islands of Taiwan. There's a lot of little offshore islands in the Taiwan Strait on both sides. All right. Um, both in 1954 and in 1955, there are heightened, heightened instances of these artillery shells being sent in both directions. Okay. And at one point in 1958, Chiang Kai-shek gets a little tired of this. All right. I think Khrushchev is visiting Mao Zedong in Beijing. And Mao wants to uh, make sure that Khrushchev's attempt to have an approachment with the United States, better relations with the United States, is ruined because he doesn't want Khrushchev to get his way. And so in order to ruin Khrushchev's attempts to have better relations with the U.S., he initiates a very conspicuous bombardment of Jinmen, of the offshore islands of Taiwan, and heightens it up, really bombing it to hell. And Chiang Kai-shek responds, and they get a message sent to Beijing, in which Chiang Kai-shek says... If you continue to shell Jinmen like you're doing, you know, not just for show, like it is usually, if you continue to shell Jinmen at this rate, I will withdraw from the offshore islands of Fujian that we retained after 1949. See, after 1949, when the nationalists retreated, they, they, they continued to occupy some offshore islands of Fujian province next to the mainland. And these islands are very close. You can see the mainland. The farms of the mainland, you can see from these offshore islands. And the communists let the nationalists keep these. Why would they let them keep islands where you could literally swim to the mainland? The reason is because they didn't want the nationalists to lose their territorial, their last territorial link with the mainland. They wanted them to keep a territorial link. link. 
Because if you lose that last link, then you'll be more inclined to say, you know what, we're not part of the mainland anymore. This is our identity. And we're going to throw in all our cards in Taiwan and create a new different state that maybe isn't associated with China at all. And so the communists wanted them to keep these offshore islands just off the coast of Fujian. And the nationalists were happy to have him because Chiang Kai-shek also needed to have a pretext. He needed to have a pretext to say, we still have a living link with the mainland and we're determined to reconquer the mainland. He had this ridiculous slogan for the rest of his life until he dies in 1975. Chiang Kai-shek had this ridiculous slogan, Guangfu Dalu, the glorious retaking of the mainland. No one believed this was ever possible. Even Chiang Kai-shek didn't believe it was impossible. He admitted, we're not going to be able to retake the mainland during my lifetime. We need to work for the success of my successors. And at one point, John Foster Dulles, this is the Secretary of State, right, in the 1950s, um, says publicly, he says, by constantly talking about an armed reconquest of the mainland, the nationalist government sounds foolish and exposes itself to a, a, a measure of ridicule abroad. And this infuriated Chiang Kai-shek when he heard this. And privately behind the scenes, he talked to the U.S. diplomats and he says, don't you realize my, my threats of invasion of the mainland are just bluster? We're not really going to do it. I know we can't do it. But just do me the courtesy of not repudiating this political platform in public. Say what you want internally, but don't tell the rest of the world that you won't support my invasion of the mainland because we have to maintain that pretense in order to say that we're still part of China. But you see, the U.S. was hoping that it wouldn't be part of China one day, and they were going to support another Taiwanese identity of some sort. Okay? So that was Chiang Kai-shek's threat to Mao Zedong in 1958. You continue to bomb our offshore islands, I will retreat from those islands off the shore of Fujian. What a weird promise, right? But now that you understand the ideological, the, the geopolitical agendas of both sides, you understand that it makes sense. And Mao immediately stopped the bombardment. Because his worst nightmare would be for Chiang Kai-shek to give up his final territorial link to the mainland. He also wants him to keep that link. So that no one has an opening to separate Taiwan from its identity as part of China. Okay? Now, there were other ways that the nationalist government on Taiwan um, attempted to represent itself as the government of China. They continued to have a commission for Tibetan and Mongolian affairs. And they invited Mongolian, old Mongolian officials who worked with them on the mainland. They invited them to come to Taiwan. They invited Tibetans to do so as well, although very few Tibetans actually did that. They had provincial associations for each province that they had lost on the mainland. They even had, and you know this is my own research area, they had a Xinjiang government in exile. They had an office for Xinjiang affairs. And it was run by Yolbars Khan, a Uyghur from the oasis of Hami in Xinjiang, who fled over Tibet in, 19, in 1950, got to northern India, was contacted by the nationalists, and flew to Taiwan to work on behalf of the nationalists. And from tropical Taiwan... A Uyghur governor of Xinjiang, this thing actually existed, sent out overtures to all Xinjiang refugees in Pakistan, Afghanistan, and India, and Kashmir to make announcements of loyalty to the nationalist government. Sometimes they would be invited to go to school, to go to a free university education in Taiwan. And he would fight against the efforts of other Uyghur exiles who took refuge in Istanbul, in Turkey, 
he would fight against them and say, no, they're talking about this thing called East Turkestan and they won't work with the Chinese government. And Yolbars Khan was loyal. And he said, no, Xinjiang is a part of China. And they fought for the loyalty of these refugees in South Asia. All right. He fought for the loyalties of these refugees against other Uyghurs who were trying to get them to disavow China and go to Turkey and identify with their Turkic heritage. Right? These are all the remarkable things that were going on in Taiwan during the 1950s and 1960s. Okay, And then the institutional legacy of some of these things are still around. I believe there is still a commission for Tibetan and Mongolian affairs in Taiwan today. Uh, the Xinjiang uh, exile government was eventually uh, dissolved, however. Uh, it was kind of ridiculous to, to begin with when you think about it. Um, all right, now, nationalist rule in Taiwan. All right, 26 years while Chiang Kai-shek is in power until he dies. All right, as we said before, Chiang Kai-shek gets a blank slate to start over with on Taiwan. He reforms and consolidates his party from scratch. No warlords, no communists, no imperialists. How wonderful. He had all of those things bedeviling him for the past 20 years on the mainland, 30 years on the mainland. Now there's no warlords to contend with. There's no communists to contend with because the U.S. keeps the communists at bay. And there's no imperialists. Yeah, the U.S. would like to replace you. But other than that, they're not undermining the very economic and political foundation of your state, however, as long as you can maintain yourself in power and not be overthrown by one of your subordinates. He undertakes land reform, comprehensive land reform. All right, gets the Taiwanese agriculture back on its feet and gets a ton of U.S. aid after the Korean War. The U.S. said we're done with Chiang Kai-shek in 1949. One year later after the Korean War, they gave him tons of money. In some years, they gave him more money on Taiwan than he ever got when he was on the mainland. Okay, the alliance with the United States will be the defining feature of political and economic life in Taiwan throughout the life of Chiang Kai-shek and you might argue all the way down to the present day. All right. From the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, there were 10 to 20,000 Americans on Taiwan at any time, mostly in Taipei in the north. From 1954 to 1989, get a load of this number, 1954 to 1989, 115,000 Taiwanese will go to, to, to attend graduate school in the United States. And maybe you're thinking, well, that's, you know, 35 years. That's not that big of a number. It is more graduate students than any other country in the world. Tiny little friggin' Taiwan will send more students to study a graduate school in the United States than any other country in the world. 40% of all Taiwanese exports, consumer goods, manufactured textiles, will go to the United States. Wow. In my class, I always like when I do the Taiwan Day, I always circulate, I always uh, copy and pass around a cartoon, a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon from 1985. All right, still at the height of the U.S. economic relationship with Taiwan. And this Calvin and Hobbes cartoon has uh, Calvin asking Hobbes, uh, do you know where babies come from? And Hobbes says, no, I don't know. Let me check your shirt. And he looks at the tag on the shirt and he says, you came from Taiwan. Ha ha ha. The joke is, is that back in the 1980s, Taiwan was one of the places that shipped all of its goods to the United States. Back then, cheap textiles and consumer goods. All right. Now the joke today is made in China, but that's relatively recent. That's in my own lifetime and adulthood that that's happened. In the 1960s and 70s, it was made in Japan. Then it was made in uh, you know South Korea, uh, Hong Kong, and Taiwan was the other big one. All right, made in Taiwan used to be something that you saw on tags of shirts all the time, and it was just like made in China today. It became the subjects of jokes. Even Bill Watterson and Calvin Hobbes made a joke out of it in 1985. 
a couple years ago, I met with the Taiwanese ambassador in D.C. You know, I'm based in D.C., so I get some of these cool opportunities sometimes. And I had lunch with the Taiwanese ambassador, Ambassador Shun. Um, and he was citing some remarkable trade, uh, trade statistic in which he was saying, you know why the United States values our relationship so, more, uh, so much is because we are an integral economic trading partner with the United States. And I said, really? And he says, yeah, did you know? And I think this is already four or five years ago. He said, did you know? that we're the eighth largest la- largest trading partner in the world with the United States. And I said, get out of here. Are you shitting me? All right, I didn't really say that. This is the ambassador. But, you know, I was like, I, I was astonished. And then I went home and looked up, up the statistics, and he was right. Now I think that number's fallen a bit. It's like eighth, uh, 11th largest in the world. But still, that's a staggering statistic. This tiny little island is like the eighth, ninth, or tenth largest trading partner with the United States? Oh, my God. That's incredible. That's incredible. Okay? Money talks. Money has always talked. It talks today, and it will continue to talk. And if you produce a successful economy that's peaceful, the great powers of the world will will work with you and protect you because their economic interests depend on it. You're looking for a reason why the U.S. continues to support Taiwan. There are other reasons we'll get into in a minute, political ideology, but the economy is one of them. All right. Taiwan is an economic powerhouse that has very close relationships with the United States. Okay. Now, representation in the UN. How did the how 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 how, how did Taiwan, or more more appropriately, the Republic of China, lose its political representation? All right. As we know from the beginning, to have that China seat, this absurd political charade in which Taiwan has the Republic of China has the China seat, despite only having this one tiny island province, nothing on the mainland. It was premised on U.S. support. And there was some contention here. Other great Western powers didn't want to do this. Britain was one of them. Britain did not support giving the UN seat to, to, to Chiang Kai-shek. They wanted to give it to the communists. And the British would eventually open up uh, a, a consulate in Beijing that will get sacked and ravaged during the Cultural Revolution. Nevertheless, they went a different route. Right? The U.S. did not represent a consensus. It represented an imposition <laughs> among the other Western allies. This is what we're going to do, and we're the most powerful state, so we're going to do it. Okay? The argument that both Chiang Kai-shek and the United States used to justify giving them the U.N. seat for China was that the Chinese Communist Party doesn't have, quote, the habitual support of the Chinese populace. They said they were the aggressor nation in the Korean War, and communism is un-Chinese. Nevertheless, there was an annual vote in the United Nations for who was going to get the China seat. Okay, and this would set off a whole lot of politicking in which the United States and uh, Chiang Kai-shek's diplomats would be going around uh, trying to grease hands and convince people, you vote for the Republic of China. You, 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 you need to vote for Taiwan the next time this vote comes up. And the communists would do their own back, you know, backstage machinations to try to get people to vote for them. And I heard this wonderful story one time from a Taiwanese diplomat who will remain unnamed, uh, who once told me a story about how back in the day, back in the, the 1970s and whatnot, uh, whenever this vote would come up, uh, Taiwan, Chiang Kai-shek, or you know, later uh, Taiwanese diplomats, nationalist diplomats, would send men out with briefcases full of cash going on planes around the world and giving these cash to, to various heads of states, saying, you know, you guys need to vote for us. All right, that's dollar diplomacy for you. And they stopped doing briefcases full of cash when one of the men who was uh, tasked with taking this briefcase full of cash around the world got to his destination and promptly disappeared with the cash and never gave it to his intended recipient. And that made a big, you know, public relations disaster and they stopped doing that. But that was back in the day. That used to be common practice. 
All right. Don't think that kind of stuff in the movies doesn't really happen. It absolutely happens. Okay. Now, in the 1950s and 60s, these votes went in the nationalist favor. The tide began to turn during the era of decolonization, however. Remember, after World War II, much of the world, which was previously a colony of some Western or Japanese power, gradually gets their independence by one means or another. Okay, and as these countries become independents, they're often more sympathetic with the Chinese communists than they are with Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists. They see the communists as someone who is fighting for the oppressed people of the world. Sometimes they have communist movements in their own countries. Okay, and many of these newly established states would start to vote for the PRC and not for the ROC. In 1968, 68 countries voted to recognize the Republic of China, while 45 voted to recognize the People's Republic of China. The gap was shrinking. And then finally, October 1971, the vote is 76 to 35 to replace the Republic of China with the PRC. And the U.S. is on board with this, and they eventually let go as well. And as you know, they also engage in ping-pong diplomacy, backdoor diplomacy, Kissinger, you know, visiting Joe online and whatnot, uh, basically realizing, you know, this charade can't go on forever. We have to reconcile somehow with China. China was looking for a way to find a new ally, uh, you know, once af after the Sino-Soviet split. It was in both countries' interests, and Nixon visits China in 1972. This is all sort of part of this. Okay, and as part of that, you recognize that, you know, Chiang Kai-shek's the nationalists is, are, are going to lose the UN seat. You can't keep doing this indefinitely. They're not going to retake the mainland. Now, the recognition of the PRC in the early 1970s as having, you know, being the only legitimate China in the world, you might think that would send Chiang Kai-shek into conniptions. So well, it wasn't as distressing as we actually think. Because as part of the negotiations with the communist government, the United States ended up signing a very important document, which still has a lot of meaning today, the Shanghai Communique. What was the Shanghai Communique? The Shanghai Communique has some language in there that acknowledged that the U.S. supported the idea that there is but one China in this world, and Taiwan is a part of that China. A very simple statement. But that clause was put into the Shanghai Communique, and the U.S. signed it. They agreed to it. There was an offer, which Chiang Kai-shek rejected, to have two separate China seats in the UN. He says, no, we're not doing that. There's one China. Okay? And eventually, Chiang Kai-shek is at peace with it. We know from his diaries that scholars have recently unearthed. He was at peace with it. Because he knew, even though he had lost the Civil War and they were likely never going to retake the mainland, he knew that Mao Zedong was also a nationalist. And that as long as they were in power, there was nothing to fear from Uyghur separatists, from the Tibetans, from foreign imperialists, because they'll keep China intact. And Chiang Kai-shek saw it as one of his great legacies, that he never let Taiwan become independent. Okay, And that one day it would reunite with the mainland when their ideological positions were a little bit closer. Okay? Now, what was the legacy of nationalist rule in Taiwan under Chiang Kai-shek? Well, it was an authoritarian dictatorship, consistent suppression of Taiwanese identity, Taiwanese politician, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, nevertheless, there was consistent agricultural and industrial development and progress. There was tons of aid money from the United States. I once heard this delightful story from my wife's grandmother 
uh, telling me how they were so poor in the 1950s and 1960s when my father-in-law was young. At one time, uh, the grandmother uh, created a pair of trousers for my father-in-law out of a rice bag <laughs> that was held rice that was donated by the U.S. military, and it actually had U.S. military on the outside of the bag. And they were so poor that she turned that into clothes for my father-in-law. Um, and Chiang Kai-shek, in the end, feels a great sense of accomplishment. 20 years on, just a few years before his death, he says that the, uh, his 20 years on Taiwan had given him the chance to, quote, show the world, undisturbed by actual conflict with the communists, the proper path for an undeveloped nation to achieve true progress. I could never have done this on the mainland with all those pressures. All right, now. Taiwan, of course, is still a police state, still under martial law. The entirety of the time Chiang Kai-shek is alive. He dies in 75. Mao Zedong dies the very next year in 76. Let's talk about how Taiwan became what it is today. Okay? A democratic society with a free and open media that holds regular elections. All right? How did we get there? Because Taiwan resembled nothing like that in the middle of the 1970s. Okay? Major reform is going to take place. Major reform is going to take place. In short, here's your answer, and then I'm going to go into greater detail. The short answer is that Taiwan needed a new reason to exist, or more specifically, the Republic of China needed a new reason to exist. All right. Once you no longer have the UN seat for China, you can't carry on that charade anymore. So why should anyone support you? The answer? We represent an alternative free China that has a free media and open elections and democracy, just like you, the West, were made in your image. That's the new identity. That's where we're going. That's where we're going to end up here. Did politicians actively think of this in the 1970s and 80s? Not like that, no. But that's the trend that eventually ended up winning out in order to continue to justify the existence of Taiwan as being separate from the mainland and for everyone to engage with this ridiculous charade that this Republic of China still exists, and it's not just Taiwan, we need to cater to the ideological agendas of Western powers, and that means democracy and open media. Okay? And that's where we're going to end up. And that is exactly why Taiwan is justified today. Yes, there's the economic relationship. But whenever you hear U.S. politicians talk about Taiwan, they wax poetic about its democracy, its elections, its open and free media. And they say, look... Taiwan shows us that the Chinese people are capable of democracy. They're capable of, you know, uh, 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 engaging in lively debate and conversation without censorship. And they point to Taiwan as the example. This is what we're holding up as the model for what we want China to one day become. Whether or not that'll actually happen, who knows? But that's the ideological justification now. How did we get there? Well, there were three causes of reform, Okay. First cause of reform after Chiang Kai-shek's death. U.S. pressure. All right, you've lost the U.N. seat. Just what I was saying now. The justification for your authoritarian rule has disappeared. Why shouldn't you just become a part of the mainland now? You don't represent China. No one, no one acknowledges that anymore. Mainlanders, you, won't, you have no way to appeal to people on the mainland either. Okay, they're not going to say, you know, we would exchange rule from the Taiwanese authorities for our own people. You're also a dictatorship. There's two dictatorships. What's so great about you? Taiwan, in the 1970s, had the largest number of journalists in prison for a non-communist country. It's remarkable. All right, don't sugarcoat Chiang Kai-shek's tenure, his rule, despite some of the things, the good things that he did. His son, Jiang Jingguo, his son takes over the presidency. 
1975 when his father dies. And he says, quote, Taiwan needs to demonstrate clearly that the strong contrast between the two sides of the Taiwan Strait is basically due to the fact that one side has implemented a constitution based on the three principles of the people, while the other has not. Taiwan must serve as a beacon of light for the hopes of one billion Chinese so that they will want to emulate our political system. There you have it. Not my words, but the words of Chiang Kai-shek's son. And what you begin to see after he dies is the gradual Taiwanization, Taiwanization of the Nationalist Party itself, which was entirely composed of mainlanders in the 1970s. All right. One third of the party membership had become Taiwanese, meaning they had grown up on Taiwan. They had been born there. At the county and municipal level, almost all the local officials were now Taiwanese. In other words, calls for reform weren't just coming from the United States. They were coming from within the Nationalist Party itself, which had become partially Taiwanized. The way I said that doesn't... Taiwanized, not Taiwanized. Taiwanized, (laughs) right? And you can't necessarily crack down anymore on people who have a Taiwan identity because those people now comprise a large portion of your party, the Nationalist Party itself. The result, and here's the beginning of a snowball effect, you got some limited democracy concessions during the 1970s. More offices would be opened to non-GMD, non-nationalist candidates. Because those who grew up in Taiwan said you need, that we need to do this. You can't advocate for communism and you can't advocate for Taiwanese independence still. Those are totally taboo. But you did start to get the emergence of vocal politicians or aspiring politicians community leaders who were not members of the Nationalist Party, but saw the Taiwanization of the Nationalist Party at the grassroots level, and they started to say, we should have political representation beyond the Nationalist Party. This can't be a one-party system. We need multiple political parties if we're going to have democracy. These people became known as the Dong Wai, outside the party. Okay? People who created their own informal, illegal political representation and, and dared the authorities to crack down on them. And their main criticisms, they said, martial law and lack of democracy. And the slogan of the Deng Wai politicians, these illegal politicians, they would say, quote, Taiwan is neither free nor China. You say this is free China, and we say we are not China, and we're not free. That was the sentiment outside the Nationalist Party, and increasingly at the lower levels of municipal and county members of the Nationalist Party as well. Now, this Deng Wai opposition will break through in the 1980s. Okay, They break through by assembling at the Grand Hotel in Taipei on September 28, 1986, and many of these Deng Wai politicians decide to test the waters. This is how these things happen. A bunch of people make a bold move, and they dare the authorities to crack down. If the authorities crack down, there'll be a a lot of blood, and your movement will have to wait a little bit longer, usually, unless the people rise up and support you, right? But if the authorities decide, no, the cost of cracking down is too high, or we don't have the will to do it, or we actually sympathize with them, your movement gains strength. And 132 Dongwai politicians sign a a manifesto for a new party. They say, we're going to call our party the Minjindang, the Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP. And the DPP will advertise themselves as a Green Party, as opposed to the Nationalists, which will be seen as the Blue Party. Blue being the color of the flag and many of the uniforms of the Nationalist Party. Okay? And they signed this manifesto, 
And Jiang Jingguo has a decision to make. Hardline members, old members, old comrades and whatnot of the Nationalist Party call for the arrest of all of these DPP parties, these Democratic Progressive Party. This brand new illegal, it's, only, it, it, it's a totally illegal party. You can't have this party, can't exist. And Chiang Kai-shek, Chiang Kai-shek, uh, Jiang Jingguo, Chiang Jingguo, essentially, uh, his son says, quote, the times have changed. Events have changed. Trends have changed. In response to these changes, the ruling party must adopt new ways to meet this democratic revolution and link up with this historical trend. And Zhang Jingguo says that the DPP can participate in the next round of elections. What was the DPP platform, the Min Jindan platform? First and foremost, self-determination for Taiwan. Remember, these guys, these are the ones, they speak Taiwanese. They grew up, a lot of them, outside of Taipei. Their ancestors date back to Fujian in the 18th and 19th century. They didn't come over after 1949. Okay? They want self-determination. We want our own country for Taiwan. And they say we're going to put the island, a, a, a picture of the island only on our flag. And one of them said, quote, and I love this quote. He said, quote, we will put the rest of the country on our flag as soon as the government recovers it. <laughs> That's great. Right? Once you recover the mainland, then we'll put it all on there. Until then... We are friggin' Taiwan, and that's what we are. And they would add other things. No conscription. There's mil mandatory military conscription for two years in Taiwan. Um, that's still around today. It said no conscription, less military spending, no nuclear plants. And when, they, and when the DPP politicians gave speeches, they often gave them entirely in Taiwanese. Which, remember, the nationalist members who speak Mandarin or other nor northern you know, or central Chinese languages uh, can't understand. Can't understand. In fact, you go to Taiwan today, this is one of the major distinctions. If you see someone speaking Taiwanese, very often they're from outside of Taipei, and they have roots that uh, predate the 1949 retreat of the mainlanders. Yes, the descendants of some mainlanders will learn some Taiwanese and whatnot, uh, but basically that's how you can instantly tell whether someone's uh, uh, parents or grandparents came over after 49 or before 49 is whether or not they know Taiwanese. Um, now, with the rise of the DPP, the floodgates are open for political reform. Martial law was finally lifted on July 14th, 1987. I think the decision to lift it was a few years earlier, hence the 38 years. But regardless, it was a long time, almost 40 years. November 1987, visits to the mainland are allowed. Lots of paperwork, lots of red tape, but you could find a way to go to the mainland, search out old relatives for the first time. Hard for many of us who haven't lived through this to imagine. But many families were separated for 30, 40 years after 1949. No communication whatsoever, not even a letter would get through. By 1989, one million people are going every year to the mainland to visit relatives, to seek out relatives, or just to travel. Just to travel. And in 1988, Jiang Jingguo, Chiang Kai-shek's son, dies. The vice president is Li Donghui. Okay? And Li Donghui is more inclined to sympathize with claims of unique Taiwanese identities. And he's going to be one who does a lot to foster and cultivate the Taiwanese, Taiwaneseization of the Nationalist Party. And in 1989, just one year after he takes over the presidency, he says opposition parties can now legally register. 30 parties immediately register to do so. And now you've got the thriving, contentious, chaotic democracy in Taiwan and a free media. Hasn't been around that long. It's only been around for about 30 years. That's it.
That's it. And so what's gone on since then? Well, you've got this interesting mix. All right, interesting mix of tensions. You've got still people, you, you have the Nationalist Party, and almost no one in the Nationalist Party now, it was actually predates 1949. Almost all of them were born on Taiwan now and are much more sympathetic to Taiwanese identity. Uh, but still, members of the Nationalist Party will advocate a platform that uh, uh, wants to achieve unification with the mainland, good relationships with Beijing, just like the old days, Chiang Kai-shek and Mao Zedong agreeing not to shell each other with artillery across the Taiwan Strait. Now we're not using artillery, but you know Beijing likes it when the Nationalist Party is in power, when they have the presidency, because they think no matter what these guys do, they won't declare independence. Okay, other parties like the DPP are much more likely to say, we're going to have a referendum on whether Taiwan should be independent or not. Now, whether or not they're actually going to carry through with it is one thing. But in their discourse, in their speeches, parties like the DPP will use a lot more Taiwanese, will talk a lot more about Taiwan independence, and they'll say, we're Taiwanese, we're not Chinese. Okay? Now, once in power, they probably won't declare independence because they know they'll be wiped off the face of the map and that no great power is going to support that anyways. What's the point of declaring independence if the United States is, is not going to support you in that? It's a pointless gesture that just invites danger from the mainland. Okay? Um, but nonetheless, this pisses off Beijing. They don't like it when these other parties are in power. All right? And each time Beijing rattles its sabers, fires some missiles into the Taiwan Strait, as they've done several times. They did it in 1996, 1995-96, when you had the first open and free elections to elect the president and vice president. In Taiwanese history, that was in 1995-96, the, the, the Communist Party was so afraid of what they would vote for that they actually fired missiles into the Taiwan Strait, and then the U.S. sent in the, 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 the aircraft carrier to the Taiwan Strait once again to ward off the mainland. All right? And down to this day, that takes various different types of you know, forms of uh, tensions whenever there's an election on Taiwan, or whenever a party that is not the Nationalist Party is in power. And now it seems that the PRC has recognized that shows of force, displays of force, are counterproductive. <laughs> Usually it just enhances the amount of support that the uh, uh, non-nationalist parties gain in elections when you fire missiles at them. All right. Um, and then your favorite candidate loses even worse than they were going to lose before. And so they're doing soft measures now. You know, they're taking a playbook from the Russians. They're meddling electronically, um, social media, these sorts of things. Okay. Um, what about the future of Taiwan? What's going to happen here? Well, here's my take. I always get asked to sort of, you know, you, know, you study this stuff for a lifetime. Uh, what do you think is going to happen? I think, whew, <laughs> I hate predicting things. The future of Taiwan is going to be the path of least resistance. All right. There's too much, there, there's, there's too little to gain and too much to lose for anyone on Taiwan to try for independence. And now, over the past 10, 15 years or so, the economic ties with the mainland are too deep. Remember we talked about those economic ties with the United States that kept that relationship so close? Well, since China's opening up and reform and the economic boom there, um, you know, most business owners on Taiwan have to move their factories to the mainland. They have economic relationships with the mainland. It's not hard to go to the mainland for them at all anymore. All right, it used to be you had to fly through Hong Kong to get to the mainland. There were no direct flights. Well, in 2008, direct flights to the mainland uh, began, and now there's hundreds of direct flights to all major mainland cities every single day from Taiwan, okay? You have, uh, you know, a market of mainland tourists visiting Taiwan 
Taiwan markets itself as the last bastion of traditional preserved Chinese culture. They say, look what happened on the mainland. All those wars, cultural revolution, great leap forward, all the culture got destroyed. We preserved everything. Plus, we had a conservative reactionary nationalist government in power, too. So we didn't destroy our, our, our temples or anything. You want to see traditional Chinese culture? You go to Taiwan. And while that's a slight exaggeration, there is some truth to that. There is some truth to that. There would be much more overhaul and tumultuous you know, revolutions and wars and movements and destruction of culture that did occur on the mainland that did not occur on Taiwan. And many mainlanders are attracted to that, too. They go to Taiwan and say, ooh, we're going to be able to see traditional characters, not simplified characters, temples that weren't destroyed. Uh, that actually are old. They weren't rebuilt in the last 15 years or so. And Taiwan uses this as part of its tourist marketing campaign. Come, come, come to Taiwan and see true China. Isn't that ironic? As the Taiwanese independence movement is stronger than ever before, uh, the Taiwanese government actually markets itself as the last bastion of traditional Chinese culture. I love it, right? Um, and they do have the National Palace Museum with the cream of the crop of the old forbidden city uh, art and antiquities. So there is also a big kernel of truth to that as well. Um, other major trends that you have, economic ties are huge, uh, cultural ties, mainland brides are a big thing in Taiwan now. Lots of Taiwanese men. Um, they say, you know, Taiwanese women, I, I, I've heard this many times, Taiwanese women are too demanding, they want too much, their expectations are too high. Go to the mainland, go to some poor village somewhere, and there's plenty of poor women who will be grateful to, uh, uh, to you. You marry them, bring them back to Taiwan. So in everything except for a political sense... Taiwan and the mainland have never been closer. Never. Never. Even in the Qing dynasty, it wasn't this close. That was just between Fujian and a couple of cities in Fujian and Taiwan. And then it was cut off in Japan. All right. Think about all the massive reorientations Taiwan has undergone. Isn't it incredible? All right. Uh, Polynesian Aborigines. Uh, Dutch, sort of a little enclave of the Dutch, then a pirate kingdom, uh, then a loose, un un unwanted and unloved Qing dynasty colony, then 10 years as a Qing province, 50 years as a Japanese colony, uh, 30 years of, 30, 40 years of martial law under an authoritarian mainland government, um, and now sort of Taiwanese independence, but with a, a, a mainland government that says you belong to us, you're not your own thing. And everyone on Taiwan saying, wait, I've never been to the mainland. I don't have any relatives there. How, how am I Chinese? That, to me, is the biggest problem today. That's the biggest stumbling block, is that if you ask most young people on Taiwan today, who are you? Are you Chinese? They will say, no, I'm not Chinese. I'm Taiwanese. That's a common sentiment among anyone under 50 years old in Taiwan today. And that's the biggest stumbling block. Okay. Um, like you've seen in Hong Kong or in Xinjiang, if people don't think they're a part of China, bullets alone don't solve the problem. Military action alone won't solve the problem. And China is not doing itself any favors on the Taiwan issue with what they're doing in other peripheries of China. With what's going on, if you follow the news, the, you know, the, the camps, the re-education camps, and the assimilation efforts in Xinjiang among the Uyghurs and the Kazakhs. Stuff that goes on in Tibet, stuff that goes on in Hong Kong, all those protests in Hong Kong. People in Taiwan watch this, and they say, yeah, when you took over Hong Kong, you said it was going to be one country, two systems for 50 years. Uh-uh, clearly you're not up, you know, living up to your province. This, this is not one country, two systems. You're assimilating this much quicker than you said you would. All right, you can, you can believe people in Taiwan with that free and open media. Maybe people on the mainland can't see what's going on in Taiwan. People in Taiwan know exactly what's going on in Hong Kong. And it scares the shit out of them, out of most of them. 
Okay, even members of the Nationalist Party who want reunification with Taiwan, that scares the hell out of them. Okay, and it makes it much less likely that you're going to see political reunification anytime soon. And the stronger that you, you know, men like Xi Jinping and the leaders of the Communist Party get in China, the less likely the United States is going to be to repudiate its ally in Taiwan. They see even more value in having a Chinese ally who they can say, look, the Chinese people are capable of democracy and a free and open society. This is our model for China one day, and we're not going to let it go lightly. And then on the side, they're an economic trading partner of ours. It's very important. So we're going to support them. Uh, But no matter what, even if every other problem goes away, People on Taiwan saying, I'm Taiwanese, don't you dare call me Chinese. That's the biggest problem. Okay, who knows what'll happen, but it's going to be interesting. It's always interesting. All I know is that I'll continue to be keeping a very close eye on the situation. Heck, my kids have Taiwanese passports, and I would sure miss drinking that cold, delicious Taiwanese bubble tea in those hot, humid summers when I go over there. Okay. The sun has set on Chiang Kai-shek and the Nationalists. Now we go back to the mainland and the origins of today's mainland situation, society, and government. We will begin by examining economic policy under the new communist government on the mainland and how the disputes over how to reach communism resulted in the Great Leap Forward in episode 37 of Beyond Huaxia. (laughs) 